Hello and welcome to Pop the History Makers with me, Steve Blame. This podcast features artists who have made an important contribution to popular music, and each podcast is split into two parts. Part one, this week's show, with singer and lyricist Derek William Dick, otherwise known as Fish. I've interviewed Fish before, just after the end of his time with Marillion in 1988. But one of the most entertaining nights of my life was at his home in Scotland in 1995. There was a lot of alcohol involved, and Fish and his wife back then, Tamara, were perfect hosts. It was a brilliant night. Well, I've always had an immense respect for the man. He's not only known as one of the good guys, his distinctive singing voice and his ability to write poetic lyrics have brought him the respect of millions of fans. And this interview highlights his trademark honesty, his openness and his drive, which has clearly accompanied Fish his whole life. You know, when I was a kid, I was, although I had a lot of friends, I was still relatively solitary. There was a lot of introspection went on, even, you know, especially when I became a teenager. And I loved music because it made me feel better about a lot of the emotions that were kind of coursing through my my mind and body at that time, you know. And I think progressive rock in the main as well offered, I wouldn't call it a, a kind of fantasy uh, a fantasy experience, you know, which a lot of people attribute to progressive rock. But I loved the introspection that I was hearing from people like Greg Lake and uh, and that alternative reality, I suppose, that was your know, pre-drugs and uh, that it offered. You know, there was a kind of escapism in it all. And you know, I used to listen to a lot of music uh, in the attic of my house. I mean, this is, gets really complicated, but. In the house we had in Dalkeith, when the house was set up, when my grandfather was alive and lived with us, my sister and I was basically given two attic rooms because it was the only space they had. And they were, it was a big room. And I used to listen to a lot of music when I was in, in, in my early teens up there, you know. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know what I wanted to be, right? I wanted to be an archaeologist because I loved history and I've always have and I still retain a, a fascination and a great love of history. I think some of, some of it's got to do with just the stories and, and maybe, again, there's a certain deal of escapism. And my imagination was always fertile. I mean, I was very good at English at school, although I didn't like it. When I was at high school, I got, you know, I had an eight higher and, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. And, I hated English, but I was very good at it, and it was imaginative writing. I mean, even in Latin, I was rubbish at Latin, but when it came to writing an imaginative kind of piece on the life of a slave, you know, I got top marks for it, you know? <laughs> and it was a, so you had a, a, you had a love of words. I loved reading, and, um, you know, and books were a, a great kind of, style for me when I was young. I mean, it, it was Biggles, it was Ed, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and stuff and, and all that kind of stuff when I, when I was, before I found music. Then I went into music and went into a very literary type of music, right? And I think words were always going to be my mainstay. You know, writing was always going to be my mainstay. And I couldn't play an instrument at school. I, I couldn't even, I can't even play a recorder. You know, my, my mind, my, my, my head to my hands does not work. 
be it with drumsticks or be it fingers in a piano or fingers around strings. It doesn't work. I can't do it, right? And I still, to this day, don't understand music. You know, you could, you could sit and pick up a guitar and play something, play a riff, and I will find a melody and I will find words and create something with you on, the, on, on that, you know? And this was all part and parcel of that journey from, I think, from my late teens, when I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an archaeologist, but because I didn't have Latin, I didn't have the classic, I couldn't go to university to study archaeology without a classic language behind me, right? So that was kibosh, right? Then I wanted to go in the army because a fascination I had with military modeling, which was again related to history. And, um, and I was going to join the army and I was interviewed. I did, I think it was three interviews for Santos Officers College, right? And I failed, I failed it on the last one when I was interviewed by a major and he, he deigned me as being kind of like too awkward. I think the question was if there were a bunch of guys playing football and they were one short and you were an officer and they were all ranks, what would you do? Would you play in the game? I went, yeah. Why? Because I, I feel that, you know, I should be able to be part of a team. You know, da, da, da. no, that's wrong. And then I ended up with a huge argument and walked out. So that was the army kibosh. And on top of that, I wanted to go into tanks, right? And they said I was too big. And I refused to hump gear across mountains, right? It's like, no, that's no fun. I, I want to, if I'm going to go anywhere, I'm driving. <laughs> and um, so the army went out the window and then, for some reason, I found myself in forestry. Biology was something I was good at school. My three major topics at school were basically biology, uh, history, and English. Right? But were you an outsider at school? Were you someone that the kids treated as an outsider? I mean, I know there's, you know, your real name, Dick. You know, you can imagine yeah. at school, it's, you know, <laughs> you're called everything because you've got a surname. Dick, yeah. uh, I don't know what you are, if you were massively tall at school or, yeah. you know, you were quite big, weren't you? Physically big. I was, I was very tall and I was a very late developer. You know, when I went into, when I was in the changing rooms, when I used to play basketball because of my height, you know, it's all the other guys, you know, to me looked like, you know, gorillas, you know, and I was hairless, you know. And, I, you know, I, I didn't, I mean, I remember shaving my legs because I was told that if you actually shave your legs, you know, the hair comes back faster. Right, I've still got two bald patches on my legs when I shaved them. Right, <laughs> but how so yeah, you... I mean, I, I was a bit of a character, and I was, and I was kind of introverted. I was the classic introvert who became an extrovert, you know, and you know, I was. So the extrovert of... side was to sort of save you from this, yeah, onslaught from the other kids to actually yeah. appeal to them in a way. Yeah, and it was, you know, you know so with the Allen and stuff, you know, read, you know, kind of his kind of things and other comedians and stuff. And you, you start making jokes and you start becoming uh, self depreciatory, you know, and uh, to make people laugh. Because if you can make people laugh, you have a certain power over them, you know. And that was kind of what I did. And, you know, but that was entwined with, you know, I mean, I never lost my virginity until I was 21, you know. And all, all the girls talked to me, but like, none of them would take it any further than that, right? So, I mean, there was all that came into it. There was, I mean, there was a lot of, kind of, a whole turmoil of emotions that were kicking around at that time. And music, as I said, was kind of like, there was, my attic was a sanctuary and, and music was kind of like where I used to skate. So I went into forestry after I left high school, mainly because I didn't have anything, I didn't know what to do. And I went into forestry and there were certain aspects of it. I love, I did genetics for a year, then I went into like a proper what you might call an industrial forest with a chainsaw for, for another year. 
Then I went to college and I studied it for a year, came out, and it was in that year, in 1980, that things started to, to, to change. And that was when I did my first gig. And that was all related to this thing about music. And I really wanted to be a singer. I always wanted to be a singer. And when I was a kid, there was a great big uh, walnut kind of wardrobe, a big full-length wardrobe with a mirror in it, with a full-length mirror in it, that was underneath the attic. So that was where the, you went up the stairs to the attic. You pulled down these, these cantilevered stairs and you went up to the attic where the music was. But kind of later on, what I used to do was play music really loud. And the pole that I used to pull down the hatch, to pull the ladder down, that became a microphone stand. And I used to pose in front of the mirror, which was where the whole idea for the Songs from the Mirror album that I did in, in 1993, it was related to a lot of the songs that I heard at that time. And I always loved music. And I wanted to, to get involved in it, but I didn't know how to, you know. And it was when I was at Newton Rigg College, I met a guy whose father knew somebody who was Bob Dylan's agent or something. And it was suddenly, there was a way into this thing, right? And when I went into forestry in 1980, I was in the borders in Scotland and I was, uh, I was, um, that was when I, I did my first audition for a band in Edinburgh that I failed dramatically, right? I mean, I'd never sang in a microphone, a real microphone before. And when I did the audition, I think I was standing about three feet away from the mic, you know? And, you know, it, it was like working with a band. It was, a, it was a really strange experience. But I kind of loved it. I got a real kind of boost out of it. And it was a girlfriend at the time, you know, who said to me, you know, you should become a singer. You've got a great voice. And what was, it was, what like, was the boost you got? Because I remember talking, you, you probably know the guy, Simon Napier-Bell, uh, yeah. manager. And he always used to say of... Um, kids who wanted to be pop stars, who wanted to be singers, that their dream was often to solve, all their problems would be solved once they were the famous singer, once they were on stage and the famous singer. And he said that often what would happen is they would get the girls, they would get the drugs, but their problems, what they hoped would dissolve, would actually enlarge. So was there sort of um, something that you had in your head by being on stage, by being a singer, it would give you something that you didn't have before, or was it purely about expression? Expression. I, I, I wanted, to, it excited me, you know, I mean, I think, you know, the, the dream of being a singer in a band, I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a dream, right? And I remember going to see Peter Gabriel in 1980, and he was on the, he was on the China 84 tour. And this is just a true story, right? I went along to see him. The support band were random hold. They were playing at Edinburgh Odeon. And I went in and the PA went down and he had loads of issues on stage. And he didn't deal with them at all well. And suddenly this person who had seen with Genesis on the Lamise Down and Broadway tour, you know, about four, four years before, I was watching this very nervous character. And I kind of saw him in a very different light. You know, and I went, wait a minute, you know, he's human. Yeah? And after the gig, right, I, I walked out into the foyer and there was a guy there who I was at school with called Gordon Feeney, who was a drummer. And he was the guy who was most likely to become a rock star in the school. 
you know. His dad bought him a drum kit. He was a great drummer. He was a big Carol Palmer fan and premier kit, which was like, wow, right? And um, and he was in the foyer and he said, do you still want to become a singer? Because, you know, I talked about, I'd love to be a singer. But he says, do you still want to be a singer? And I went, yeah. And he, he said, do you want to audition for a band? He said, we've got a band called Not Quite Red Fox. He said, we're looking for a singer. And he said, yeah, he said, I'll, I'll give you a bell. And I went, whoa, an opening. And I, I remember leaving the foyer and I thought, you know what? I went round the back to the backstage door and I knocked on the, I knocked on the door and opened it. I says, hello, uh, I'm a German journalist. My name is Dirk and I'm supposed to be doing an interview with Peter and my plane was late and blah, blah, blah. Made up a load of cock and bull story, right? And this is true. This is true. Yeah, okay. And I walked in, right, to the, into the backstage area and was face-to-face -face with Peter Gabriel, right? It wasn't even hang about. I basically walked through the door and he was like, you know, he must have been moving about in the backstage area. And I was like, hi, Peter, how are you doing? And I said, really loved the show and, and it was so different. I made up some, you know, like, it was really great. Can I get your autograph? And he autographed the ticket and I've still got it. And it hang, it's, on, it's reversed, right? So the autograph's in the back and it's still on a, on a, a framed uh, yes poster from my very first gig. And all the tickets I went to the 1977. But I had Peter Gabriel's autograph and I met him. And he was this little guy. And I went, you know, you know what? I could do this. And I, it started to get me, my confidence started to bubble a little bit. And then I went to the audition and it all fell apart. Right? But I came out of the audition and I was more determined than ever to, to become a singer in a band. And I went down to Gala Shields with my girlfriend, who I was kind of staying with off and on at that time. Right? And there was a bunch of people in this flat. And I said to him, does anybody know, where's the bands? Where do you find, you know, people who are in bands? And somebody said, you've got to go meet a guy called Dottle, right? He said he's a drummer in a band. And he said he, he drinks in the Golden Lion in, in Gala Shields, right? So basically, the next night, I went down to the Golden Lion, walked into the Golden Lion, which was uh, a little pub in, on the corner of Gal Shields, right, and on the corner of the A7. Walked up to the bar, ordered a pint, turned around to this guy. I said, I'm looking for a guy called Dottle. I said, I'm, I'm trying to get a job in a band. And the guy says, I'm Dottle, right? <laughs> and he, as he said, and we're looking for a singer. And he said, you'll come up in the audition in three days' time. And it was that fast. And in three days' time, I went up to the audition, and they said, "What do you want to sing?" And it was we were it was a tiny little cottage, in, way up in the, the wilderness at the back of Gala Shields. And you and played in that Gold pub, didn't you? You played in that Red Lion pub. Yeah, the Golden Lion, yeah. Golden Lion. I went up sorry. to this. I went up to the cottage, and Frank Usher was on guitars, right? And there was a bunch of other guys, all old guys, and they were basically a hobby band. You know what I mean? It was just you know they were just playing about. They loved playing. What do you want to sing? I said, I don't know. He said, do you know this number, Genesis? No. He said, you know, no, we don't have a keyboard player, right? And they said, well, what do you know? I said, all right now. He said, okay. And they're launching all right now. And I sung all right now. And he went, you're in the band. There's a cassette. Learn these, learn these songs. There's the lyric sheets. You'll be doing a gig next Thursday. And then the following Thursday, I went into the Golden Lion, had a bunch of pints before the band had even arrived. Then had a couple of whiskeys to get my, and I'm so adrenaline up, even at that point. Right, and the band came in, we loaded equipment up, and we did the gig, and I sung things like, uh, uh, I did some Rai Kudo songs, um, I did uh, uh, Walk On By, which was the original kind of Aretha High vocal one, right? 
I did a couple of Steely Dan numbers, which was like Night by Night, and I did All Right Now, and uh, uh, Baby Please Don't Go, that kind of stuff. And I was, and I, I was rubbish. And I, I dressed all in white, because I thought that's what singers wore. So I had a white kind of Indian hemp shirt on, white flares, right? And after the gig, right, it was like da-da-da, and I, I was like, that was a good night, totally pissed. I didn't realise I was going to throw up. Ran from the stage, threw it in the toilet, and threw up all over the wall, and my white uniform, right? And the band were going to fire me, and Frank Usher said, the boys got something. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Words obviously played a, a massive part in your life so when did you discover the power of them and when did you discover that you really had the power in in words genesis duke right this album was found in a second hand shop right in uh falkirk about a year ago right and somebody said to me, the, the, the woman that found it said i don't know if this is you she said i know your name's derek dick and on the back of it, I've got, there's a, there's a handwritten poem called The Allotment. And it's snowdrop unfurls, virgin glory resplendent, among brambles of anguish with the thorns of sorrow. Must my lifeblood decorate these barbs, nourish the roots before I can cherish the solitary stem of completion. Laughter and happiness dissipate the weeds of depression that clutch at my feet and scar my heart. Will I savour the flower of fulfilment, or will I remain another crying jester caught forever in these brambles of malice? Right. And I wrote this. Can you hold it up to the camera? Can I see it? Yeah. Right. Right. I wrote that in 1980. And it was found in a second hand shop, and I wrote it for a girl that was staying in the flat. And it was, it's like, a, I mean, if you read it, I mean, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll look at it now and you go, like, oh, for God's sake, you know what I mean? But I wrote that. And it was the first, it's the first evidence of my writing that was ever found in a, in a second hand shop in, in Falkirk. And she sent it to me. And, that, and it's got the reference to another crying jester. And that was, that was you know, two years before Script for Jester's here. Right? And, um, and she sent me that. And that's what I did. And, and, but I loved words. And I started to write bits and pieces of words in 1980. But I didn't know where, none of the band that I was in, which was called Blew It, they didn't want to write. They just wanted to play covers and, you know, play Raikuda and, and, and blah, blah, blah and shit, you know. And, um, and I wanted to write. And because I couldn't play an instrument, then it was natural for me to offer myself as a lyricist and, and become a writer. Then I went, I, I, I kind of, I left forestry in that summer and I went down, joined a band and uh, auditioned for a band in Kettering called Stranger. And that was a new wave of British heavy metal band. And I just didn't like it. It was like, it was, and they said, your voice isn't loud enough, right? And the first band that auditioned for Not Quite Red Folk said, come back when you get a bit more experience. The second band said, your, your voice isn't loud enough. Then I joined this band in, in, uh, down in Retford, right, called the Stone Dome Band, and met up with Diz Minute, the, the bass player. And we eventually came back up to Scotland to try and start a band up in the borders of Scotland where I'd been singing, which was a waste of time. There was no way you were going to start a progressive rock band up in the borders of Scotland and make it happen. 
So the two of us lived in this uh, in this cottage, like in the wilderness. I mean, it was it's, it's like you couldn't have been any any wilder than where this place was. Hawkshaw's cottage. I mean, it even sounds something like Emily Bronte, you know. <laughs> and um, and it was a. Uh, and we stole coal and stole turnips and, you know, and survived, lived in one room. And we wrote a couple of, I wrote Garden Party lyric there, I wrote The Web there. And we were getting desperate. And that was when, you know, we found an advert for a band in the back of the musicians only weekly newspaper that was at the time. Put our last 10 pence or whatever in the, the telephone box at Eric Bridge, phoned them up and they bullshitted us and we bullshitted them about like how many people we knew and, they told us that they were doing massive gigs and blah, blah, blah. And we went, let's go for it. We sent them down a, I sent them down a tape where I sang over the left-hand channel of the stereo over Genesis songs, Yes songs. And we said they originally wanted a, 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 a bass player who could sing. And we said, well, there's a bass player and there's a singer here. Will you take the two of us? And we drove down on, in, January, uh, in January 1981. And we drove down to, to Aylesbury with no intent of coming back. And that was when I met Marillion. And that was when I started writing. And that was where I found the power of my words. As fall fills up with activities and obligations, even a small time saver can feel like a big help. Grammarly is an all-in-one writing tool that makes clear, concise communication easier than ever. So you can finish your work earlier and head off to family dinners, social events, and fall weddings. Grammarly is free to download and works where you do, so every project gets finished quicker. Make sure your writing is free of mistakes with Grammarly's free, comprehensive writing suggestions and get an instant take on how your message comes across with the free tone detector. Let Grammarly Premium's sentence clarity rewrites help you find the perfect words on the first try. You'll be confident writing client emails, deadline-driven reports, and presentations without staying late at the office. Get more time back in your day by writing with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcasts to sign up for a free account. Then get 20% off when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium. That's Grammarly.com slash podcasts. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about that, uh, um, let's call it audition, is the audition you're describing as sort of not really an audition because in a sense, they're also auditioning to you because they were desperate for, you were desperate for a band, or you two were desperate for a band, and they were desperate uh, for a bass player and a singer. So it's yeah, a sort I, of I, the perfect I we combination. Were, I, I think but, perhaps Diz and I were the more desperate parties. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, but we, we, I, went down, we, we went down to Aylesbury, and the, like, you know, we were, I think it was January the 3rd we arrived or something like that, or the 4th. Met up with the guys in the pub, and the next day we went up to this little mouldy studio, and I sang a couple of things with them and jammed a couple of things. And they said, you're in, you know, and that was it. And then we started writing, you know, and that was it. Yeah. But, you know, that was the web and, and, and stuff and um, uh, Garden Party. He knows, you know, was written in the Unemployment Benefit Office when I was working there, when I was trying to just keep, get money to keep a flat together, you know. So it was, um, but yeah, but I mean, that was, it was, a, it was a great match. I mean, it was like, you know, it, I knew that my words were never going to be, you know, I was never going to be in a, a heavy metal band or a pop band or whatever with, with words that I was writing. My mind wasn't in that frame. But progressive rock and what I wanted to do as a lyricist or as a wordsmith, you know, was the perfect match. And and Marillion were open ideas at that time. You know, they were, you know, they were quite happy to take it on. And, and then we just developed and 
you know, I did my first gig in, uh, what was it, March 81, I think it was or something. And it was, um, you know, petrified, wore the face makeup because I was so nervous about going on stage. But I was still okay. wearing all white. Oh. <laughs> you really? Okay. Was it true, though, on the, um, um, in that audition, that after going to the pub, you went back to the flat because they all shared a flat, I think, as well. So you went back to the flat, stripped off naked and sort of fell into a ditch. Is this true? No. no. You can't remember that. No. no, definitely not. You wouldn't definitely, remember that. I've done that. I've done that before, but I don't remember. <laughs> don't remember it that time. Okay. The other thing that I read was that they, they were impressed with you, but they weren't so keen on Diz. Um, but you were very much loyal in terms of it's both of us or none of us. Exactly. That was, that's quite a, that, I mean, I know it's a real friendship thing, but on the other hand, it's a really difficult thing to say, isn't it? When you've got an opportunity like that. Um, I mean, it's pokering, you know, <laughs> as well. Did you it feel was, that? It wasn't quite as, it wasn't quite as played as that, you know, it was kind of, I don't think it was ever, um, really brought to the surface at that point you know it was uh but i mean you know i was joining with Diz, and there was no way i was going to walk away for Diz. i mean Diz and i were joining that band you know and um and you know it wasn't as if you know they, they didn't have any gigs or anything at that time i mean there was they had nothing you know it wasn't right. as if they could like you know there was no other bass player right and the drummer wasn't that great you know, it was like, it was as if they could start, oh, we want Chris Squire. We, that's what we're really open for. You know, obviously, it was never like that. But I mean, you know, we came together and Diz and I stuck together and it was good having Diz, Diz and I being being a couple at that time. And as far as, you know, being a couple of really bonded mates, you know I mean? It was good for the both of us. And, you know, it, it gave us a little bit, of, um, a little bit more leverage in the band when it came to making decisions and things. Not that there was any real, you know, because once because they didn't have any idea, you know, they were they were just fannying about, right? In all honesty, and they had no idea how to take it forward and break it forward. And there was a there was somebody who was called Guy, who was the inverted commas the manager, right? Who was he was a bit of an arse, right? And he wasn't really getting anything for us. So I was like, okay, that was where the drive kicked in, you know. It was like, you know, from, I'd say that the drive started, it went in the first gear when I left Forestry and it kind of it paired about in the, in the lower gears, you know, until I joined Marillion. And once I had got into Marillion and there was a, you know, I had the unit because that was what Diz and I didn't have. When we moved to Aylesbury, there was the unit there. We had the band and with the band, we could do things. And the band just needed somebody to drive it. And nobody else in the band wanted to drive it, right? Mick Pointer was working as a joiner. He was quite happy in his house, living with his, his partner at the time. Steve Rothery was kind of, you know, pretty much in my, in, in my kind of mindset because he'd come all the way down from Yorkshire to join the band before. And they'd gone nowhere. They'd done nothing, right? And Brian Jellam, the keyboard player, he worked in the unemployment benefit office and, you know, was, he wasn't really that interested in going professional. He liked to play about and fantasise about being Tony Banks. But, like, you know, it was really Steve and Diz and I that kind of really started to move it, you know? And then I took control, you know? Yeah, and also what's interesting, I mean, you mentioned the, like, the going backstage Peter Gabriel story. In a sense, you used the same sort of techniques, didn't you? You just, you got in front of people, you phoned people up, you made sure you were in the right place 
at the right time to get the band a gig, to get the band pressed, to actually also um, bring other people into the band. And it does feel like you were the, such the major drive um, in... I don't know really if this is the right word, but you know when um, you want everything to be perfect and you're a perfectionist, you have the feeling, when I, wherever I read the sort of Meridian story, it's the feeling is you're the perfectionist. You're the one who's pulling the band along, saying, we've got to get better. This has got to work. Like the drummer's a bit weak, you know, and, and all this stuff. Was it like that? And did they see you as a tyrant? I think now they look back at me, and now I think they look back at me as being a, a bit of a tyrant. But I wasn't a tyrant. I mean, it was it was all for the band. I mean, I was still there was still a, there was a great gang mentality about the about the band, you know, and they trusted me, you know, and I was learning all the time. I mean, I had never done this before, right? And I had a book. It was called How to Become a Rock and Roll Star, and I think I've still got it somewhere, right? And that was my bible, right? And you know, I kind of realized, you know, it said press agent, you need to get somebody to help you with your press and things. And I happened to bump into, uh, I happened to bump into Pippa Lang. And she was on the train as we were heading down to Marleybone. And I can't remember what I was going down there for, but I was going to London for to meet something or, or hand a demo in or something like that. And I remember she told me at the time, and this is really wild because. She said that she knew that Alan Parker was putting together the wall and they were looking for somebody to play pink, right? And she said, you'd be perfect to play pink, right? And she said, if you want, actually, I can maybe see if I can get you an audition for it, right? And we were talking at the same time, I'm trying to go like, I need a press officer, we need to find somebody. And she said, Keith Goodwin. She said, you need to go to Keith Goodwin. I used to deal with yes and stuff like that. And I went, bam. And I, I set up an appointment, met him in Oxford Street in this tiny little office up there that had gold albums from Yes on the Wall, which was like, wow. And we took him on for 120 quid a month. And he got us our first articles in the sounds. And Keith was a hugely important part in the development of Marillion because he got us in the Kerrang and the sounds and the Melody Maker. And, you know, I was booking all the gigs at that time and, and sorting the demos out and trying to further the band. You know, I remember I went down CITB agency in, in, in Wardour Street, you know, trying. I walked in to meet this agent and trying to get one of the support on the Greg League tour. And he said, well, we want three grand support. And, I'm, and I left the office going, how can we find three grand? And we're all phoning up our parents, trying to borrow money from here, there and everywhere to get the three grand to buy on the Greg Lake tour, not even knowing what we were going to do once we got on the bloody tour, right? And... um. It was that, but, but, but I was driven. I, I couldn't go back. I mean, my, my dad, my dad wasn't happy with me leaving forestry. Neither was my mum, and uh, and you know, I'd given up a lot in the same way Steve Rothery had done, and I, I didn't want to give up. You know, I, you know, this was what I wanted to do: buy hook or buy crook. I was going to like be in a band. Money didn't drive me. It was never the money. It was never, you know, the, the kind of the girls. They they were just you know, bonus things, right? But I mean, you know, it was it was the band. It was like let's write songs, play people, convince people that the band's great. You know, develop the face makeup, book the gigs. It didn't matter whether where we were playing, whether it was Annie's Wine Bar in Chesham or where we were playing, you know, in some the, the backwater of Luton somewhere. It was like we went on to make an impression, and we I, I built 
a kind of plan too. It was round places so that we were always building and bringing fans in that were coming in in car roads, coming to these shows. And then we built it up. And then I recognised we needed a gig in, in London where we could get, we could, it could become our home spot where we could, where people could come and see us because nobody in the a and departments is going to come to Aylesbury, right? So we needed London. And that was when Keith Goodwin managed to introduce me to the ma- manager of the marquee, Nigel Hutchins, and I managed to blag a support spot to Girl on the 20th October 1981. And we brought two buses of fans from Aylesbury and blew Girl off the stage. Right? <laughs> You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. In 1982, I booked a Scottish tour, and that was when we went professional. Right, that's when everybody left their jobs, and it's like we're going to take the jump now. And we 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 took the jump, and it was um, it was a huge jump, and it was you know coming up to play Scotland. If I hadn't been for my dad putting petrol in the van, right? If I hadn't been for the fact that we could stay at my mum and dad's kind of they had like a holiday home down in North Berwick, like a little flat, and we stayed there, and that was that was our our core point where we went to all these different gigs all across Scotland. And, and then we came back and then it moved into, uh, you know, the marquee. We, you know, we were selling at the marquee in, in, in 1982. And, and, you know, people couldn't ignore us then. You know, when we were doing two nights at the marquee, you know, people couldn't turn around and say, well, it's, you know, why is this band not signed? And people started coming to see us. Tony Stratton-Smith from Charisma Records, who had their offices above the, the marquee in Wardle Street. He was coming down and... Uh, you know, there was a great buzz about the band and it was only a matter of time, but I didn't know how to take it into the next level, you know? And we'd be, I mean, we'd been rejected by every major record company, including EMI, on the very first demos, which had, he knows, you know, Garden Party and Chart the Single on it, right? And, you know, Garden Party was a top 20 single. And that was, all, they were all rejected. I've still got every rejection letter from every record company, right? And, um... Basically, it was like we needed a manager to, to bust this forward, and then we eventually settled on John Arneson. But I mean, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd talked to other people. Pete Mensch, who managed Def Leppard, he wanted us, and he didn't want us, he wanted me. And he came, he took me aside, and he said, like, uh, I, I want to sign you, but I don't want the band. And wow. I said, Did well, they I'm know not about signing. that? Yeah, I'm Did not saying they know about that at the time, the other members of the band? Yeah, I think they did. Well, I told them, you know. But, it's, uh, but I mean, we just said, no, we're, we're, it's a band. I'm saying, you know, we're signing as a band. We've come this far as a band. Like I said, there was still the gang mentality and the, they, they trusted me, you know, that yeah. I, I wasn't tired of them. I don't think they were scared of me. I mean, I think there's a lot of stories come out since, you know, that a lot of them I don't relate to at all. And, you know, and some of them are just complete bullshit, you know? Yeah. I mean, but, there's um, always internal creative differences in a band. I mean, you're going to argue about things, you know, certainly mm-hmm. creatively. One of the things that I think is very difficult from a band that's really at a point of getting a record contract, dealing with a manager and dealing with outside forces on your creativity. How did that work? Because how did you, I mean, (laughs) making songs that are extremely long, (laughs) not making radio edit songs, as it were, for a record company, is a difficult one, particularly at that era. It wasn't something that was really done, was it? So how did you deal with the outside influences 
on the band? Did you deal with it as a band or were you the one who had to go and sort of argue and just say, well, this is what we're doing, take it or leave it? It was, I spoke up, but it was agreed as a band. It was, we still worked, we still made decisions together. Like, for example, Tony Stratton-Smith sent his, uh, one of his right-hand men, who's actually an accountant, sent him up with the A&R guy, and they came up, ironically, to Retford to see us play up there. And Mick Pointer and I were put up in a hotel uh, so we could have a discussion, you know, with, with the guys for Charisma. Tony Shran Smith sent them up, and and we'd already agreed as a band that we were not signing signing a single deal, right? And a lot of the deals that were on offer at the time were, we'll do two singles, and if they work, we'll give you an album deal. And we just said, no, we're an albums band, you know? So we want an album deal. And Tony Shran Smith had sent these guys up to Redford and told them, and no uncertain times, get Marillion signed. And they drove up in a, a, a big Rolls Royce, and put us up in a hotel, tried to basically, you know, play the magician trick on us, right? And it's like, well, get, we'll do two singles and, like, you know, we'll do the album. And I just went, we just went, no, right? And Tony Stratton-Smith went absolutely mental. And Charisma, if Charisma had offered us an album deal at that point, we would have signed it. But because this guy offered two singles and we just went, no, that's not what we're doing. And I think they were shocked by kind of, it's like when it, they've, they've just turned charisma down. But that was when, it was after that when, when uh, John Arnold got involved. It was like it moved forward. But it was hard for me to relinquish the reins, you know. And, you know, and I think, you know, John Arnold and I had a lot of head-to-heads. You know, I did question a lot of things that were done, you know. But um, but I trusted him at the front. I, I you know to some extent. You know I wasn't completely sure when we took him on board. But you know he managed John Cooper Clark, Pauline Murray, and the Invisible Girls and things. He had a band called Rage. He knew he was what we needed at that time. You know, and I think you know as the years went by, I think we outgrew him, and we could have done with a better manager. But uh, but at that time, it was you know it was an important jump for us. I mean, I want to jump a few years because uh, this is called the History Makers. And, you know, the, the pinnacle of success and where everything seemed to come together was, of course, misplaced childhood. Yeah. And um, I just wondered how, when that success started and you really got, you know, you really achieved massive, massive success, how that then affected you personally and whether you felt like you'd achieved everything you wanted to at that moment? Well, it was a kind of... Um, it was a very slow metamorphosis, really, from, you know, when the script, we did the script album, right? And then we started playing bigger gigs. Then we had a lighting crew. Then we had proper sound crew. Then we were, like, you know, staying in proper hotels. And then Fugazi, which was a very difficult album to make, which was the difficult second album. And there was a lot of drugs kicking around during Fugazi. I mean, you know, really were never the kind of, you know, arty-farty band that a lot of people kind of made us out to be. You know, we weren't an art college band, you know. And I think me especially, I mean, I was quite hedonist and, you know, I enjoyed all the trappings of being in a moderately successful band at that time. And then I think when we went into Germany in 1983 and then especially in 1984, that was when we sort of realised it was really happening, you know. 
But at the same time, you know, we've done videos and we've done a lot of the things you associate with, like, you know, this is, wow, you know, big band stuff. But at the same time, you know, we were ramming up a lot of debt with EMI, you know, and we were close to being dropped before misplaced. And I think the attitude we misplaced was, what, what are we going to do next? And it's like, well, let's do a concept album. And I had to come up with a concept, which I did, you know, as loose as it is. And um, and my writing had changed. I think I became more confident in, in what I was writing. I was a lot more uh, open and honest about myself when I was writing rather than hiding it within kind of all sorts of things. And, um, and, and then there was, you know, my personal life at the time was... Uh, in turmoil. I mean, you know, the big long relationship with, with Kay had, had kind of had broken up finally in, in 1984. And, you know, it was, a, it was a do or die moment really with the record company. And then they sent us away to Berlin, which was perfect. So nobody could hear what we were doing unless they flew all the way out to Temple off and, you know, and made the effort. So you were hands and years, weren't you? Yeah. Over the wall. Yeah. Tell me about that. Huh? Tell me about that. You were chucking things over the wall at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was kind of like the hotel we had to get to. It was like a U shape, right? And on the base of the U was the wall, and on the right hand side of the U was an alley that went down to the wall that had our shitty hotel in it, and on the other side was Hanson Studios. So every time we went from the hotel, we went over the wall. And we used to get pitched up and throw bricks over the wall trying to set off landmines that we thought were over the other side. Uh, <laughs> because also Hansa Studios is, of course, you know, iconic, isn't it? Lust for Life, yeah. Bowie's Heroes, you know, and Bowie, you know, in the song, yeah. is also looking over the wall. So yeah. there's, you know, references there. Berlin, of course, I mean, Berlin is, a, as you know, I live in Germany, and Berlin is a... a an absolute brilliant city, but it's a city where I've always felt if I lived in Berlin, I would not only get lost, I'd probably end up in a gutter one day, which is why I never moved there. <laughs> How it was did you like feel that. about Berlin? <laughs> Gutters were great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did end up in a gutter. No. <laughs> I, did end up, I did end up very naked in, in, in Berlin. Uh, I remember I walked through a restaurant naked. Right? It was in a, in a bit. We were all... Mark, we all went out with Chris Kimsey, the producer, one night to this Austrian kind of Tyrolean restaurant. We used to go up there on a Sunday because they had Tafelspitz, which was the closest we could get to roast beef, right? And we went up one night and we all got very, very drunk. And, um, and we were drinking Drambuie or something. I can't remember what it was. And um, or Rusty Nails. And, and Mark Kelly dared me to walk naked through the restaurant, Right. So I went down to the toilet, stripped absolutely bottle naked, came out, walked up, sat at the table, is everybody all right? Like, da, da, da. Paid me the money. And, da, da, da. and I remember I walked out the restaurant naked and I don't come back in again because I left my belt, right? And there was loads of waiters taking photographs of us. So like somewhere, there's, there's some waiters somewhere in, in, uh, in Berlin that have got photographs of me naked in a restaurant. They probably don't even know it's me, right? But, it was, uh, but yeah, Berlin was brilliant. It was a fantastic place. At that time, we were isolated. We could, you know, it was just us, the studio, and, you know, you know, we didn't really know anybody there, you know. So we were just, you know, bouncing about like a little gang, you know, having lots of fun. And, like, I had lots and lots of fun. On the next edition of Pop, The History Makers, with Steve Blame, Fish's life after Meridian, how he's changed over the years, his latest album, and he says his last ever studio album, Welchmerz,
and whether he'll be back on tour anytime soon. See you then.